like I said before, the only thing you can do wrong as a coach is make everybody do the same thing. Like there's no drill, there's no thought, there's no cue, there's no feel that's wrong. None of it is wrong. All of it helps somebody, right? But you have to kind of guide them through that process and allow them to explore and experiment and try all those different things so they can figure out how to get their best result as a player. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jonathan Gellner and thank you so much for joining us. Today we're speaking with Eugene Bleeker, founder and director of player development for 108 Performance. Coach Bleeker and I dig in on how to develop both throwers and hitters, and some of the details include launch angles, how there are no bad coaching cues based on interpretation, and why shutdown periods are vital for arm health. Eugene is one of the brightest minds in player development, so you better have your pen and paper ready for this one. Here is Eugene Bleeker. Coach Bleeker, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you having me on. So for our listeners out there and uh, for a mutual friend of ours who was Connor Dawson, uh, I was at the ABCA and I was texting him and I said, man, I would love to meet Coach Bleeker. And he goes, well, look for me in the bucket hat and look for the guy with the handlebar mustache. So that's, that was my first first introduction to you. We've uh, we've been talking ever since and I'm so thankful uh, to get you on the show. So. For our listeners, can you tell us, you know, a little bit about your story, how you got to 108 and what you guys are currently doing? Yeah, so I uh, I opened 108 a little over three years ago. I was running player development at a large multi-sport facility, and I felt like I had a, you know, a, a, I was doing a good job on the hitting side, uh, but there was just a lot more to dig into, and I felt the same way on the throwing side, and I was doing lessons and classes and running teams and doing all these different things. And I really wanted to, you know, pinpoint and direct my focus in a, in a very specific direction. And I also felt like with the group of players that I had, um, I built it up to about 100 players in the program. Uh, but I had 60, like 60 guys that had been with me for a while that were just really hungry guys that were at the shop, you know, more than everybody else. And I felt like they needed something more. Uh, a lot of them were freshmen and sophomores, you know, in high school at the time. And I wanted to provide them with a different environment. I wanted them to be able to come in all the time if they wanted to come into the shop. Um, I didn't want it to be they had to pay more to be able to do that. I wanted to provide them with more individualized, uh, you know, lifting programs and, and strength and conditioning stuff, you know. And I felt like on the team side, there's a lot of different teams you can play on. There's a lot of places that do, you know, lessons and stuff like that. And I just, I, I wanted to go a totally different direction and build the culture uh, a little bit differently. So, um, you know, I left in September of 2014 and I opened up 108. I got the building in October and we were open by November and, uh, you know, rest is history. So you said that you love having the kids in all the time and you, your model is they have like a monthly fee and they just show up anytime they want to. Is that correct? Yeah, so we set players up with like two to three days a week of kind of scheduled times that we know that they're going to, you know, be in. Uh, generally, players will spend anywhere between like two and a half and three hours. Some guys will hang out for like five, but they'll come in for like two and a half or three hours, two to three days a week. And the rest is considered open membership. So they can come in as much as they want. We want them to be there more. The more they're there, uh, better the culture is, better the energy is, the you know, better they get because they're in there more. So 
Well, and that, like you said, that builds the culture. You have guys that want to be there and want to get better. And, and your age ranges from, you know, pro ball guys, major league guys down to what, 12, 13 year olds? Yeah, actually, even a little bit, uh, we have a couple guys that are a little bit younger than that. We have uh, both locations. Um, their location in Riverside, we have a wait list of uh, about 200 players. And at the location in Orange County that we just opened, we have a wait list of about 100. Uh, we've taken a little over 80 players into the program so far. So when we bring players in, we're trying to make sure that they're going to be a good fit for us here because we do all long-term development plans. There's a lot of work that goes into you know, what we're doing behind the scenes, you know, it's not like they're just showing up. I mean, we're putting together uh, plans and direction for, for what we're going to be doing with them. So um, if we're going to work that hard for a player, we want to make sure that we get the right guy that's going to be spending all that time with us. So, so yeah, and we have, uh, you know, I think we had four or five big leaguers this off season and then a lot of minor league guys, uh, a lot of college players. Um, and the youngest player that we have in the program is eight. Wow. He is the younger, yeah. He's the younger player of one of our uh, uh, younger brother of one of our older kids, and he is unbelievable. He sits in on conversation. I let him hit with uh, pro guys sometimes when hmm. when they're there late, and he gets there early. He's just a he's a little stud. He works really hard, hits nukes, and he's just a the unbelievable kid. Well, that's awesome, and 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 it's going to it's helping his development. See those pro ball guys too, but it's it sounds like the kid is really mature and. And it sounds like that's what you guys look for is guys who are really wanting to take ownership of their entire career. Yeah, 100%. When we sit down for evaluations, we do them uh, in small groups, uh, six or less. And when we do the evaluations, the first half hour of it, 40 minutes, is us sitting down with the families and with the players and trying to get to know them a little bit, get to know why they're wanting to be here, what their goals are, how much do they love baseball. You know, because there's a difference between kids who play baseball and, and baseball players. Mm. And, you know, the, there are kids that just, you know, they live, eat, sleep, and breathe it. Um, you know, I've been like that my entire life. I was the kid that was, uh, you know, I went to baseball academy. I was collecting baseball cards. I was playing baseball video games every day, uh, watching baseball tonight since it came on in, in 1990. Like, I just, um, I've always been obsessed with it. I mean, I have twin girls. Uh, one of them is named after my favorite player, and the other one's named after the stadium I grew up going to watch games at. So, and so, what are their names? Uh, Brooklyn Shea uh, okay. after Shit Stadium and Mackenzie Rose. Oh, that's so, awesome. So Pete Rose. Yep, and I know that could be controversial, but I'll tell you what, man. You know the way that that guy played the game is what we would want from from any of our kids. And if my daughter does anything in her life with uh, half of the the passion and the intensity he played baseball with, she can be really successful one day. Love it. So you go through the interview process and you decide that he's probably a good fit for you guys. Now, does he just show up the next day? What does that look like? And what what's really the first thing that you guys would do together? Yeah. So the first thing that we're doing is uh, the evaluation process takes about four hours. So after that interview takes place, um, we generally do the throwing side first. So uh, we have them go through the, whatever their pregame routine is. You know, we kind of sit and evaluate that, see what their understanding of their body is, of what their pregame process is, which is generally very poor. And then if it's a pitcher, we have them do a bullpen. We're collecting velocities, spin rates, uh, getting a 2D analysis. Um, so we collect some slow motion video. Um, if it's a position player, we'll capture, you know, we'll get some, uh, some max velocity throws, uh, seeing what the raw velocity looks like. And then we'll also get some position specific throws get video for them too. And then at the end of that, um, generally takes like an hour, uh, we'll sit down and we'll kind of go through 
our belief system on on working with pitchers and throwing development and we go through some high level throwers and discuss similarities differences and you know then we sit down and break down all their footage and then we do the same thing in the hitting room so we take them into the hitting uh we're collecting exit velocities launch angles 2d and 3d footage um you know and then kind of the same process we sit down and walk them through you know the swing and our belief system and and hitting as a whole and uh, try to answer as many questions as they may have and make it like the best private clinic that they've ever been a part of and you know that's it and then if we end up taking them into the program um, we will call them generally sometime in the next week or two weeks and we follow it up with a with a like a assessment like a physical assessment so uh, we have two performance guys um, that uh, run that side of things, and they are both uh, Cressy trained guys. They both trained at Cressy Mass, so they uh, they do their thing, and and we're looking at you know mobility levels, range of motion, uh, looking for any red flags, trying to get an understanding of how they're put together, and that's how we build all their individualized programs. No, I love it, and so for our listeners who are a little bit curious about what you guys teach as far as pitching goes and as far as hitting goes. Is there a, uh, maybe without giving away too much, is there a simple explanation of what you guys look for with, with both? I would say that from a throwing side, we're looking for efficiency of movement, a guy that's, uh, we, we want to see someone capture energy really, really well and, and hold on to it really, really well mm-hmm. um, and operate in a very clean fashion. What that means is different for everybody. Sure. I mean, more than anything, we believe in individuals. We believe in training. And I, I believe that the only thing you can do wrong as a coach or a trainer is make everybody do the same thing. Everybody needs something different. Everybody's built a little bit differently, has different mobility levels, different, you know, uh, strengths, weaknesses. And you, you have to allow players and, and figure out what it is that they need, not what it is that you want to teach them. So that's something that we try to, that's something that we really try to, uh, keep at the forefront of it. But I would say from the throwing side, one of the things that's very important to us is arm path. Arm mapping, I think, is uh, is really important. And I think a lot of people don't really uh, and truly understand why, you know, weighted balls are important or plyo balls, which I think are, you know, one of the most important things that we do. Uh, and one of the things that we do best, the reason that, you know, weighted balls really do provide, um, you know, velocity development doesn't have anything necessarily to do with the weight of the ball, but more to do with uh, the efficiency of the movement that throwing them can create. And when you do arm mapping work with plyo balls, um, you know, you can really watch magic happen sometimes. So from the hitting side, um, I would say that the most important thing for us is that we're coaching the individual. You know, swing patterns, uh, I think, trump everything. Uh, how they're achieved is different for everybody. Everybody has and needs different uh, thoughts, cues, feels to create their best individual swing. and. Uh, it's important not to get caught up in teaching them their, like, you know, what our idea as an instructor is of the swing and, and more important to figure out what they individually need because not every player's body moves in, the, you know, the same way. You know, when you look at like Josh Donaldson, um, he is an extremely, uh, a loose mover and he needs to do a lot of things to pull slack out of his body and his body has the mobility levels to, really unwind over a great distance where, you know, you look at a guy like Trout, um, you know, it's very, very different. He is a much stiffer mover. Mm-hmm. And as a result, his swing needs to operate very differently. So based on the athletic profiles of the players we're working with and, and based on uh, how they move, uh, we are trying to build their swings around those specific things. 
And you guys use the major league guys as the models just because they're the best in the world at what they do. So you're trying to pick out similarities of what they do, how their body moves, and how the kids with a similar body type move, and and just find a way to merge the two. Is that what you're what kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, um, I would say it's not that we're trying to you know use a major league player to just be an exact replica for that for that young player. We sure. want to find his. Right. You know, but 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 when you look at major league players, um, you know, the most successful ones, they, they have uh, similarities in terms of body type and how they have found ways to be successful. So, like, if you look at a, a bigger guy, right, or a guy that's a stiffer mover or a guy that has, um, you know, less mobility in his upper body, you'll often see that they start with very early posture. Uh, and they're generally more extension based and they don't, you know, rotate a whole lot on that back foot early in the swing. And you know, there's reasons for that. That gives them space to work directly to the ball. They don't get cut. Their body doesn't get in their way, essentially. You know, like when you're working with a young player like that, you know, it makes sense to, to go in that direction because they struggle with the same things. They have very similar body type, very similar, you know, structure, you know, and, uh, yeah. So when we're looking at players, we're just trying to evaluate, um, you know, how they move, how they're put together and, and figure out how to put together their best swings. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in the external goal-based approach and self-organization, but mm-hmm. not to the extent of the, the things that are being discussed now. You know, like when you look at self-organization, not everybody self-organizes uh, in the most efficient way possible. Not everybody self-optimizes, say. And the other thing is how do we even know that they're self-organizing when they've been patterned uh, over years of instruction and being told this and that and the other things. So we don't even know if they're actually self-organizing, right? What if their swing was self-organized very differently seven years ago than before they're walking in today? So I believe in guided self-organization, say. And yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And again, yeah. it, it's it's you're giving them every tool possible, but that's why you go through the interview process or trying to get them to own it let you know how they feel and to adapt the things that you see that the major major league players do so well uh, and put it into their swing. I I think that's what that's what at least what I'm yeah. getting from you. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, you know that that's a common common thing that player will player will ask us. Uh, okay, well, how does that look? And the first question they're going to get in response is, well, how does it feel? Mm, how does right. that feel? Do you feel like you had space? Do you feel like you're moving well? How does that feel? Um, and once we get in tune with how they feel, um, you know, then we can, we can help, uh, cause it's a, it's a collaboration, you know, we don't, we want them, like you said, to take ownership of, of what it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've had to, had to do this, but I've had to outlaw the word good. I said, good is, is not an option. So explain to me how that felt. And that, so they can't say good anymore. <laughs> I don't know if you run into that problem, but I do all the time. Of course, of course, it makes me nuts. You ask a guy how he did over the weekend. He says, oh, good. Good. Yeah, that doesn't help me. Like, how about you give me some kind, some kind of information that I can use to help <laughs> you? Like, uh, well, you know, I went three for four. I felt like I hit the ball really hard. Or I went, you know, one for four, but I hit the ball hard. Or I had a really bad day. My timing was up. Like, give me something I can use to help you right now. Sure, but if you send them a text, it would be a it would be a pretty pretty long one. But in person, it's like, eh, good. Oh my god, you're, you're driving me nuts. Uh, yeah, well, a big part of that is teaching them what it is that they need to feel. You know, uh, what they're trying to absolutely uh, uh, look for. What they're you're trying to create. You want them to be their best coach, and you want to give them as much information as they need and as we can, um, so they can understand how to make adjustments on their own and. 
you know, it's one of those things where like when I was a young coach and I was doing teams, you know, I made the mistake of, uh, giving them too much. So, uh, like, a, I took a team over and we were like a double A level team. And in the course of a year, we built ourselves up to play majors level competition. We won at the majors level. Um, and then I ended up bringing on another team and an assistant coach. And what ended up happening was when we went to tournaments, I wasn't at the, uh, the team that I had been building for a long period of time. I felt like they could do it without me. So I would go with the younger team. But what happened when I wasn't there was the team fell apart. The mistake that I made was that you know, if we were in the sixth inning of a championship game and I had, you know, uh, we had the three hole hitter at the plate, there's two outs, guy on second base, he's been torching us all game long. And I know that he's going to swing at three balls in the dirt or chase because he's going to be over aggressive. I would call those pitches and then explain it to them afterwards. Now, even though we won that game, that was not a teaching opportunity. What I should have done and what I would go back and do differently about a situation like that now, if I was coaching youth baseball, right? I would allow for them to call those pitches. I would allow for them to make the mistake of throwing that guy an OO fastball and then he tortures us. We lose the championship game and then sit them down afterwards and say, listen, we lost that game because you made a huge mistake right there. We had first base open. There were two outs. The guy on deck hasn't had a hit. It looks like in a week, right? He's got no clue right now. Uh, we should have pitched around him. Right. We should have allowed him to get himself out to go after that next guy. There's a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. Right. But they have to go through and experience that failure for that to happen. You know, um, and as a, as a young coach, I wasn't I uh, wasn't on that as much. We can't be afraid to let players fail, you know, and then they have to experience things and, and figure things out. You got to guide it and you have to teach them what they need to do to succeed instead of just giving them all the answers all the time. No, absolutely. And I think that's a common problem that young coaches have in general. I know I did. You said you did. I hear that from a lot Absolutely. of a lot of coaches and it's it's we have most of us have been there or in a similar situation and so we're trying to help them by telling them the answers like you said and and we want them to succeed but at the same time is it really teaching them what they need to know and how to solve those problems to be successful. So most of our listeners are high school and college level coaches, some youth, but Let's let's talk about the off off season. I know this is this is the time to change things uh if we're going to for the most part and and get bigger, stronger, faster. So, let's let's flat, fast forward to, you know, August or September. What does a typical off season look like and can you give us some off season hacks of what we're trying to look for, what we're trying to build on and how do we make our players better most efficiently? Well, I would say first that Often in baseball, players are used to, you know, if you, if you were a piano player, you would spend, you know, six months practicing and training for that one recital. You know, mm -hmm. for that one time you went out and performed. But in baseball, everybody, they get too used to playing. They're playing too much and not training enough. You know, shutting, shutting down during the fall and I think altering the way that guys go about their fall programming is really important. You know, I think breaking things, allowing guys to, to shut down, first of all. Uh, giving them an opportunity to give their arm a rest. I know that you're in a warm weather state. We're here in Southern California. Um, guys don't get an opportunity to give their arm a break and their arms need a break. And they also need an opportunity to on-ramp them really slow. Mm -hmm. you know, muscular atrophy happens at a three to one ratio and you can cut it down to like 1.5, two to one with really good training. But you, you can't do more than that. You, you can't base shutdown periods, which are often done in, you know, like December and January based on the convenience of a schedule. You got to do that right away. 
You have to give the arm the opportunity to take a rest. And then you really want to on-ramp, especially for the elite arms. You want to give them six to eight weeks before they hop on the mound and start bullpens. And then you want to get, you know, solid 12 to 16 bullpens in before they start pitching in games. Um, and I think that that's a really, really important thing for, for coaches to kind of get a hold of that fall baseball um, should be based around getting off of the field and getting into the training environment. Tons of ground balls. Uh, ton. You, you could be taking 400 ground balls of practice per kid. They don't have to throw the ball to, to be able to, to do that. There are guys, position players, you know, if they want to throw throughout the year and they're not taxing the arm too much uh, during that time, you know, that's, that's okay too. But the, the pitchers are the big, you know, that's the big issue for us here in Southern California. I would say that making sure that guys are, are getting strong is, is really important, especially at the, the high school level. But there's another missing component from the, from the strength thing that I think people often miss. You know, baseball is a game where you see uh, players that are small throw really hard and guys that are small that hit the ball really hard. And there are guys that are big that, that don't throw very hard and guys that are big that can, can lift you out of the gym, but they don't hit the ball as hard. And a lot of that comes from the, the movement patterns that get created by their bodies. And a lot of it also comes from the neuromuscular control that they have. If you think about, if you took 15, 10-year-old kids, and none of them have ever played baseball before, and you gave them all the same information, gave them all the same training for two months, at the end of two months, only one kid goes to shortstop. And that kid is probably your best pitcher, and he's probably your best hitter. And everybody always says he's the best athlete, mm-hmm. right? He's, when I look at athleticism, I think of strength, size, speed, right? Like LeBron James, best athlete on the planet. How would he do on a major league baseball field right now, right? Even though he's the best athlete on the planet. That kid that's at shortstop, the reason he's there is because he has a higher degree of kinesthetic and spatial awareness and a higher degree of neuromuscular control than all those other kids. His brain controls his limbs in space better than all those other kids. He would beat them in ping pong, you know, throwing darts, shooting pool, uh, you know, like tennis, golf. Um, he would learn all of those other things faster than those other kids, despite uh, that there's other kids that might be stronger or faster or, say, better athletes. Mm-hmm. At every next level of the game, it's filled with former shortstops, filled with former shortstops. There are guys in college and pro ball all over the field that were all-state shortstops in high school. There were guys in the big leagues at every position that were shortstops in high school, all-state shortstops in high school, guys on the mound, right? So... In my opinion, the key to building elite-level baseball players, yes, strength is important, but how do you make everybody a shortstop? How do you increase neuromuscular control? How do you increase kinesthetic and spatial awareness? Like That's something that needs to be uh, looked into way more deeply and needs to be trained uh, to a way higher degree, which is why we have a guy named uh, Joseph Cancellieri that I hired when I opened up the second location here. Uh, he got his master's uh, from Columbia in Biobehavioral Sciences, and he worked under a guy named Dr. Keith Pine, who's listed as a Cairo, but he's more of a movement specialist than anything else. And then in 2016, he was with the big league club with the Nationals as a sports scientist. And we were blessed to be able to hire him almost a year ago now. And he's heading up our neuromuscular control program here, you know, working on all that stuff. So I think that's a huge, huge component that uh, that baseball is missing in that in that training environment is is just teaching the body how to move better. No, absolutely makes sense, and I think that that's a part of the game that is hopefully gaining traction soon. But say we don't have our own Joe C, then 
how do we as high school and college coaches train those movement perceptions and the kinesthetic awareness that you're talking about? Um, well, that's a great question. I would say um, it's probably a really great question for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say that um, finding ways outside the scope of what you're used to doing, uh, finding uh, ways to, to move differently and create more movement options in what you're doing, um, you know, doing more balance work, doing more things with your eyes closed when you're doing hitting stuff like uh, standing on two BOSU balls with your eyes closed or, or hitting off of a tee standing on two BOSU balls. Like uh, just things that are changing your sensory perception and teaching your body how to move through space differently. Um, you know, that's why we do so much PVC work and feel work. And, um, you know, like when you're doing arm mapping work, it's like this, it's the same kind of thing, you know, like so. Um, learning to understand how you move through your swing, through your throwing patterns, uh, slowing things down, back chaining them, doing them backwards in reverse, uh, hitting from the opposite side. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different things you can do. Oh, that's awesome. And staying a little bit on the subject of, you talked about shutdown periods. Now, is that plyo ball work, any type of overhead throwing, or is that just a baseball? Yeah, so it's it's throwing and jab. I mean, it's different for different guys too, mm -hmm. right? It's different for different guys too. Um, you know, big thing for us is not mandating that everybody across the board is doing the exact same thing. We have some guys that like to play a little light toss, some guys that like to mess around with throwing the football a little bit here and there. Uh, but for the most part, it's giving the overhead athlete an opportunity to stop being an overhead athlete for a few months and and you know work on. Um, you know, building back up uh, their mobility, their strength levels. Um, you know, the season is often a, you know, controlled decline, right? So, you know, their body over the course of the year of all that playing uh, is losing a lot of the strength that they gained during the previous offseason. Um, so, you know, big focus on that. I feel like now thinking on it that I didn't do a good job of answering your first question earlier about the high school and the, the college coaches and things during the, during the fall. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so why don't, why don't we get back on that? Sure. Um, so you, you mentioned like team hacks and things. Or, or you mean like in terms of like practices or how things are run or how to make things more efficient? Well, what specifically? All of it. <laughs> Whatever okay. you want to go into, we could stay on this all night because this is, this is one of my favorite things. That falls okay. Hit more. Hit, hit more. more. Got it. Hit more and, and go double barrel with stuff. Uh, have multiple stations, give, give them external goals during practices, um, and give them tons of opportunities to do different, uh, to do different things. Like give them short bat work and long bat work, uh, give them underload, overload bats, give them, uh, external goals that they have to hit. Stop focusing on, uh, like very specific, oh, we're gonna swing down here, or we're gonna swing up here. Like, Give them, without being a, uh, say, swing technician, you can make every hitter better by allowing them to figure out how to achieve the goal of hitting the ball in the opposite field gap, hitting the ball in the pull gap. How are they individually going to produce their best results? Some guys that are like, say, 10 to 30 launch angle guys, right? Like they're, they're doubles guys that don't hit too many home runs, but they hit occasional home runs. Um, some guys that are those 10 to 30 guys, like they, they might need to think 10. To produce that result, they might have to think to hit the ball lower to actually achieve that result because of how their swing is put together. Some guys to be a 10 to 30 guy, they have to think to hit the ball higher. 
So rather than focusing specifically on like up, down, or on the ground, like like have them focus on those external goals that they're trying to create in that team environment and have them do that with different implements. Um, I love choking up on the bat. I love short bat work, you know, but giving them small groups, allowing them to compete within those groups, I, I think is uh, is huge. Exit velocity is not... Um, I think it's very important and we do focus on that here, but how different guys achieve their best exit velocity, that's different for everybody. And that's, see, that's another really important topic to touch on. So, um, everybody's best result based on how they are as a mover is achieved differently. So you have a lot of different camps on intent level, right? So there's some former players that are coaches now and they say, Oh, you know, don't swing as hard as you can because you know, that's not going to produce your best swing. Be easy. And then you have other guys saying, no, 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 swing as hard as you can. Same thing on the throwing side. That's generally because they know how they produce their best results. And a lot of it has to do with how guys are, are put together. Guys with less stretch, right? So like faster twitch guys that are tighter movers, they struggle to create like stretch with their body. So if they try to swing too hard, right? They muscle up and they lose their pattern. So they generally have to operate with less than max intensity to produce their best stretch and produce their best exit velocities, right? So if they're just focusing on swinging as hard as they can, they might not be producing their best swing, you know? And then you have other guys that are looser movers that need to think to swing as hard as they can. So while they're working on their exit velocities, while they're working on their their launch angles, giving them uh, the understanding that it's not about swing as hard as you can. It's about achieving your best result. It's not about swinging up or down. It's about achieving your best results so they can figure out how to achieve that. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely makes sense. And this may sound familiar, but it goes back to what we talked about like two minutes into the show of having those conversations with the kids and individualizing everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like uh, you, you have to, like I said before, the only thing you can do wrong as a coach is make everybody do the same thing. Like there's no drill, there's no thought, there's no cue, there's no feel that's wrong. None of it is wrong. All of it helps somebody, right? But you have to kind of guide them through that process and allow them to explore and experiment and try all those different things so they can figure out how to get their best result as a player. And you can figure out as a coach how to get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, well, what, what you, you can't say like, oh, in our program, this is what we do. Like everybody's going to swing down. Well, you know what? Like if, if that might help some of those guys and I have guys, I tell that they need to think down, right? Because it produces their best swing to hit the most balls in the air, the way they need to hit them. We have, if we make it more about the players and less about our programs, we're going to get more out of our players as individuals. And as a result, we're going to win more games. You know, like we, we have to, as a baseball community, allow guys to, to experiment and explore and, and really, you know, embrace the fact that everybody is their own individual and we have to focus on that. Like that, that's such a, a huge, huge piece. Definitely. And on the subject of hitting and pitching, a problem that I have to deal with all the time is, and, and, and it's not a problem because it is a luxury when you can have guys that are really good at both. But it's really tough to get two-way guys as much work as we want. Is there anything or any advice that you could give to us? Because, again, we have, you know, two and a half, two, two and a half, three-hour time blocks with these guys. And our best, our, like you said, our best shortstop is probably our best pitcher, who's also our best hitter. So how do we maximize our time for two-way guys? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's the same way you maximize, you know, your time with everybody. First of all, two-way guy, 
you know, he needs to understand that he has to work twice as hard as everybody else because he has other things that he needs to do. Mm -hmm. He needs to do. Secondly, as coaches of teams, right, we have to start to like guys have to realize what their job really is. If you ran an orchestra at the school or you were the band, you know, you, you ran the band. Okay. Your job would be to prepare everybody for the, for the, for the recital. And your job would be to, to make sure that the, the best, uh, you know, the best, uh, musician is in first chair in each section and to make all of that music sound beautiful together, which is really hard. That's a really hard job, right? Going out and winning games and teaching teams how to, how to compete and building a culture and making sure all those pieces are working together. Um, you know, that, that's, that's what the number one goal is. And in a two or three hour practice a day, that's a big enough job in itself. That's really hard to be able to do that and get guys individual work and individual development on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Those players need to understand what they need to do on their own outside of the scope of what's going on with the team at practice because it's time for that's team time. And if you're providing them with individual time, that is awesome. And if you're providing them with stuff to get better, that is also awesome. But especially with a two-way guy, the best thing a coach can do for a player is empower them with information so they can spend time on it on their own. At the collegiate level, guys want information. Guys want to get better. If you can provide them with, with like a base of knowledge, like if you can tell a guy, hey, listen, son, here's what I need from you this season. Okay. I need for you to hit the most doubles in the state. I need, I, I, I need for you to produce your best result, hit tons of line drives in the gaps. I want you to hit, you know, 350 with, with 17 doubles and like whatever it is. I want these things for you. Here's how I think you can best achieve them. Here are some things you can do to work on it, right? Because you're not going to get all of the time in the world while you're here. And if you're only doing, if you're only working on those things while you're here, you're not going to get the results you're looking for, right? You need to spend extra time on your own with those things. Show up early, stay late, go to the cage and wherever you hit, like whatever it is, right? But empowering them with information is so powerful. A couple of years ago, I was out at Vanderbilt uh, with Scott Brown, who's just an awesome guy. and. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to sit there and not only talk with him, but watch him work with, with some of his players. And uh, one of the things that he said that stuck to me that I was just so amazed with, because I didn't know what to expect going in there. I knew that they ran, you know, an amazing program, um, but I didn't know how the inner workings of it looked. And every single pitcher that walked in that day, you know what the first thing he said to him was, what's your plan today? Mm. What's your plan today? Because he empowers them with information. He provides them with tools to get better. And he allows them to craft their own stuff and he guides it, right? Like that's what we need to be doing because that's how things are going to get more efficient. Like everybody talking about the time, like that's because you're like all the coaches are struggling to figure out, well, how do I do it in this amount of time? You can't, you can't, you can't build a culture and build a team defense and build a team offensive approach and build all of the, and get all of that work in on your own. You know, they have to sharpen their skills on their own. And you have to empower them with the right information and the ability to be able to do that. So especially with a two-way guy, like he's got to know what to do on the extra time because he's not getting all that work in just, just in that two to three hour span. Got it. So switching gears a little bit and talking about the shutdown period, when do you guys usually shut your arms down? 
Well, that's always a battle, right? Like sure. we're, we can only we can only guide our players to the best of our ability, and some guys, you know, listen better than others mm-hmm. uh, because they are under the confines of of working at a high school program or a college program, and you know that program may not allow for that to happen. Which is why we need to start being more open minded to it. Because if a kid just came off, if he's a fifteen year old kid that just came off of a season where he threw seventy, you know, five innings. You know, him pitching all fall makes no sense. Right. Like, like he, he, and he shouldn't have to go play another sport to be allowed to shut down. Right. Because if he goes and plays another sport, he'll be allowed to shut down. It won't be looked well upon, but if he's a good player, the team's going to accept him back. But why can't that kid say, you know what, coach? I really want to be a baseball player. I don't want to go play another sport and I want to be a part of this team, but my arm really needs a break for like six weeks. And then I'm really going to need like eight weeks to bring it back up. So I want to be a part of this team, but I really don't want to pitch in the fall. Like that needs to be allowed. That needs to be allowed. That needs to be okay. And that kid shouldn't be getting like, you know, look frowned upon like he's, he's all about him because of that. That should be allowed to happen. Right. You know? So. So yeah, so we, I mean, ideally, time period wise, like you're shutting down at the end of August, beginning of September, um, you're giving your arm like six to eight weeks of no throwing, you're on ramping for six to eight weeks, and then you start getting on the mound, like, it's like a four month, I mean, I believe in like a, you know, a four month turnaround. Right, and it, and it is so hard. I mean, I, I know you deal with this too, and so just taking, for instance, some of our unsigned senior pitchers, okay, so we have two that are twins. And they were all district last year, but they're, you know, 86, 87, and they're, they're unsigned right now. So they pitched all spring. They, so January, February, March, April, and May. And then they pitched all summer. So June, July, probably took a couple of weeks off from August. Uh, and we're not in school. So they, you know, they say, they say they do. So we're, we're going to hold them to that. We come back for September. We're playing a little catch. We play October and November because all teams in Texas do. We take a couple weeks off from December, and now we're back at it. And so you're looking at it, and then they're, they're again they're unsigned, and so you've got colleges who want to see them, and they want them to come to uh, some some showcases, and we we can't say no to that because we want what's best for them. And so man, it's it's hard. Like you're saying, yeah, it's, it's always it's no, so I'm hard. totally with you. It's a fine and delicate balance. And you mentioned one of the most difficult scenarios. What do you do with the unsigned senior? What do you do with the unsigned senior? And each individual, we've recommended different things to different guys because different things happen. Like uh, I think Ben Brewster tweeted a while back, uh, he had a kid that was an unsigned guy um, that shut down during the fall. But then by the time the spring came around, because he shut down, he had gained like four miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So like then he signed in the spring, you know, so it's, it's always a fine balance. Like in a guy that's 86, 87, if he's thrown a lot of innings, if you give, if you, if, if he shuts down, and he doesn't go to those showcases, there, there, you know, might be a chance that when he comes back, if he trains the right way, that kid might be 88 because he got a break. That kid might be 88 because he spent time training. If he's 88 in the spring, he's getting signed, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and yeah, so the, the, there's, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, you know, and the, like you said, the, the uncommitted senior is definitely a, always a difficult scenario. Uh, sometimes guys need to push through that. Uh, so they can get seen. And other times I think the shutdown is the right call. Uh, I think it just depends on the individual in question. It depends on what their workload was. It depends on how tired they are. Uh, are they showcasing declines in velocity right now because they're so tired? Uh, are they still peaking and they need to push it a little farther? Uh, would they be a lot? You know what I mean? Like there's a mm-hmm. lot of different ways. And, and 
I don't think there's one way to look at it or one way to answer it. And uh, I think as long as the player is being guided well and they can make the best possible decision for themselves, right? And they understand that it's their choice and their decision and they don't feel like they have to do something because someone's making them do it, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, a team like a travel team or a high school team or whatever, then I think they're in a good situation. Oh, definitely. And so let's, uh, let's talk about the end season while we're talking about shutdown periods. So you give your guys a ton of time to on ramp and come back, which I think is a fantastic idea. And you've kind of been in both settings. You've been in the team setting and you, you obviously played in college and whatnot, and you're now on the player development side. So is there a way which keeping in mind, uh, most of our listeners are high school college coaches. Is there a great way to help our kids still develop in season? Uh, what are some ways to do that? And what, how, how can we help them do that? Yeah. So I think it's different. Again, going back to the individuality aspect, everybody has different training needs. You know what I mean? And it's a different time period for everybody. So like the kid's a freshman, if he's a 14 year old freshman in high school, and you know, he's in his high school season, that kid still needs to be lifting and, and developing, right? Like he, he can't not like lift and really train from, you know, January, February, all the way until, you know, September or November, like that, it doesn't work. That kid's not going to get better like that. You know, like he, he needs to lift and he needs to train kind of through his season. If you have a high school senior that throws 96 and he's getting looked at for the draft, like that guy should really focus on his recovery protocols, making sure he's maintaining strength during his season, but he's not overdoing it. And, um, you know, I think it's different for everybody. And I think the best way that, that coaches can help uh, their players is to guide guys the right way, get the right protocol set up and guidelines and allow guys the ability to do what they feel like they need to do to get better. That's a perfect answer, and I love it. And uh, staying on that with, with your 96-mile-an-hour guy, you talked about having a great recovery routine. And I'm always, always trying to look for stuff to help each of our players not only get their pre-throwing stuff better, like they're getting their arm woken up and, and, and their, just their body in general, but also a way to recover better. So we don't have the sore arms the two to three days after. And I just I want to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can to keep our arms healthy for the spring. So what is your what are your favorite pre and post throwing just anything so we can add to our toolboxes? I really like a lot of the uh driveline protocols for the for the pre and the post stuff as far well I would say on the post side, um a really important thing is, you know, doing the trampoline work. I think that's a really important recovery tool. Uh so a lot of our guys, you know, will will do that. You know, we use the uh the plyo balls a little bit post throwing, we use shoulder tubes pre and post throwing you know so uh, again different guys need different amounts of things and need different things on their pre and post so i recommend that the best thing they could do is log how they feel uh after after performances and then try to determine whether or not they're doing enough recovery work um i think that nutrition plays an integral role i think uh you know uh, uh hydration plays an integral role i think sleep plays an integral role um, and I think all of those things need to be paid attention to by, by people too. I think those are often very lost in, in translation. We have a kid that's training for the, uh, for the draft for this upcoming year. He's a top ranked player in the country. Uh, we have four kids who, who we believe could go in the top two rounds of the draft next year at high school. And, and this one particular kid is just an absolute monster. Like he's 220 pounds. He's done great with us in the last six, eight months, eight months, maybe 10 actually, mm -hmm. now that I think of it since he started. 
but like he came in the other day and we discussed his nutrition program. And I asked him what he ate that day, and he had consumed roughly 2,400 calories, I think it was, that day. And he actually had a Fitbit on, and I asked him to you know, see what he burned, and it was like 3,900 calories he had burned that day. Uh, he'd only consumed about 90 grams of protein, and he weighs 215, 220 pounds. Like, he wasn't even close. Players need to understand the nutrition stuff better um, and what an important role that's going to play in, in your recovery. So. Better nutrition programs, better hydration, um, you know, uh, and then the other stuff is just, you know, dependent on um, the individual, making sure they're getting some blood flow after the game. Uh, a lot of guys here like to wrap their arms, um, you know, do a little flush work with that. We use Mark Pros, kind of anything and everything. Again, just like kind of what I mentioned, like what Scott told me, mm-hmm. uh, we, we introduce a lot of things to guys and we want to know and log how they feel and how it's making them feel. And that's how we add and take away and, and through all of those things. I love that. And, and we, I just talked our trainer into getting a Mark Pro. So we, it's on the way and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Again, we, we do a lot of those different things with the rebounders and the flush bands. Lacrosse ball is a staple. Every one of them has our ki- a, a one in the bag. And yep. again, it's just each kid is a little bit different. A good lift has been a huge factor in ours lately. I mean, that's, that's something that, that is thankfully changing in the last couple of years of, of should pitchers lift, but they love it. Like if they don't go lift, they don't go do sprints, then their arm feels, and, and that's something that they've owned as well. So I did steal the one to seven, uh, scale from Joe C. He said, I said, I, I always talk, uh, talk to kids and, and ask them, you know, how's your arm feel one to 10? And Joe was like, uh, Joe, Joe is the guy who works for, uh, Eugene at, uh, at 108. And, and he said, why don't you tell them one to seven? If you tell them one to one to 10, they can't find something in between. So I was like, you know, that's, that's why you're the smartest guy in the room, Joe. So we, <laughs> so, so we stole that. And every day it's, how does your arm feel one to seven? Tracking your protein. That's a huge, huge thing for recovery. We're foam rolling every day. I, I, I think we're doing most of the right stuff, but I always, it's either you are helping confirm what we're doing is right. Or we're getting to add something or take something away that, that is not right. So hopefully the coaches listening out there could, could take some of the stuff away and, and add it to it because it doesn't, it doesn't take a whole, what is post throwing take 10 to 15 minutes maybe, but it's a huge, huge benefit when they come in the next day and they're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not really sore at all, especially when you're during the middle of the season and you're sitting at a higher velo than, than when you, when you were starting, you know, two months earlier and arm feels great. So. Huge benefit yeah, in that. And some guys, some guys that aren't getting the results from that, because sometimes guys, uh, some guys, sometimes guys need more. Mm-hmm. So there are guys you mentioned like ten to fifteen minutes. Like there are guys that need like thirty. Um, ju- just like uh, you know, their pre programs are guys that it takes them way longer to get hot. Their body just doesn't get hot quite as fast. Uh, it's the same. It's the same kind of thing. So if you ever have anybody that uh, is not recovering the way that you, you want to see them recover and they're still not feeling good, increase the length and the, the exercises that they're doing, get more blood flow going through their body because they might need to get more going on to to keep feeling better the, the next day. Absolutely. What are some of the most common problems with kids that walk into 108? What, are, what do you see a lot of and how can we as high school coaches or just as coaches in general, how can we help fix those problems? From a throwing side, we see that a lot of guys don't have very good pregames, don't have very good post. You know, you're obviously doing an amazing job over there, but you know, as a whole, 
I think not enough players uh, put enough care into the pre and post throwing protocols. Uh, so that's that's definitely one thing that could be done way better that we see a lot. Making sure that they're tracking and, and getting an understanding of how much they're throwing, managing their throwing protocols and, and programs better. Uh, a lot of times guys don't have a good understanding of um, you know what their throwing program should should really look like. Uh, on the hitting side, I would say, oh, and actually going back to the throwing real quick, we see a lot of underuse injuries now. Underuse injuries because guys are afraid to throw. So like we had a kid come in last summer and he was a high school um, junior, going to be senior. And he had been up to like 92, 93 as a sophomore. And now he's only down to like 87 when he came in and his arm was bothering him. When we started going over his schedule, you know, he's like, well, yeah, I don't even understand why my arms hurt me. I'm hardly throwing. Like I'm only playing catch twice a week and I'm wow. pitching at showcases once every other weekend. And I'm doing one bullpen during the week. Like you're hardly throwing. Like you're hardly throwing. Your body is not prepared to accept what you're asking it to do. And, and you need to do a better job of, of managing your, your, you know, weekly throwing schedule. You got to throw more. You know, we see a lot of guys that are afraid to throw because they're afraid to hurt their arm. So throwing more, not less, I think is big and finding that balance. On the hitting side, a lot of, uh, we, we see a lot of, uh, steep and pushy swings. We see a lot of steep and pushy swings. We see a lot of athletes that uh, don't have athletic swings that are forcing, um, movement patterns instead of allowing their bodies to move really well, you know, forcing to fight to keep the hands inside the ball. You know, when we look at keeping the hands inside the ball, how, how we view it is that you're basically just holding on to your angle, right, uh, between your forearm and your barrel line for a really long period of time and determining when to release it. When you watch elites at the big league level, you don't see them like pushing their hands out away, breaking their their chain of energy, right? So So we're trying to capture energy through the chain. And we want that barrel to start turning kind of when it needs to turn. And you should be able to determine when to release that, but you shouldn't be fighting to keep your hands, you know, inside the ball. So, you know, we see that a lot. And actually, this is going to sound really funny. Um, hopefully, you know, I know the coaches is going to sound crazy. I was actually talking to two coaches that stopped in today about it. But a lot of times when guys are, are rolling over the ball or it's perceived as rolling over, I mean, essentially, rolling over is just pulling the ball weakly on the ground. Uh, a lot of times that that's happening, we see guys that are fighting to stay inside the ball too much, and they're not turning their barrel early enough. And as a result, they're not ever getting to an extension point towards the pull side. They're actually delaying it way too long and kind of fighting, right? But the barrel is angled towards the pull side at that point in the swing, so the ball goes weakly on the ground of the pull side. Um, just because the ball goes weakly on the ground of the pull side doesn't mean the kid's rolling over. And a lot of times it's because they're not turning their barrel soon enough. So cueing them to turn their barrel earlier can work wonders uh, for guys like that. So with the guys like that, is it a light bulb to say it's okay to pull the ball? Yes, it is a light bulb to say it's okay to pull the ball. It's a light bulb to tell them to turn the barrel. Generally, they, you know, they, their eyes light up after they take a couple swings and, and say, well, that feels faster. Well, yeah, it feels faster. You're allowing your barrel to turn and you're guiding it through the turn well. You're not fighting to like push your hands inside the ball. Like you're, you're, you're turning your barrel when and where it needs to turn. They often say it feels more fluid. It feels looser. Like I'm, I'm clearly I'm hitting the ball harder. You know, we, we definitely see a lot of that as well. And a lot of guys give up. A lot of guys give up the ground. They think that because big league hitters, their back foot comes up, they force their back foot up and they just kind of give it up instead of 
holding on to the floor and capturing energy from the ground. You, you don't want to just like allow your back foot to just kind of fall forward and just come up. You, you want to use the floor and you want to hold on to it as long as you can. And there's a lot of times where when that's happening, your back foot comes off the ground, but it's because of the transfer of force. It's not uh, because you're just forcing that to happen. So we see a lot of guys that give up the ground as well. So are we going to get a kickback reference at this segment of the show? <laughs> the kickback. I know that some people aren't in on it, but I got to tell you, man, like it's an amazing thing. Uh, we had the opportunity to run um, a, a full study at a biomechanics lab that we're partnered with Movement First out here. Uh, they're like 10 minutes from our Orange County location. The partnership has been amazing. Uh, we brought in like, uh, I think it was 20, 23 high school, college and professional hitters. And we tested them in you know four different stance variations. The kickback was one of them. And God, did we see amazing things. I mean, we saw when we think about the swing, there's oftentimes like you'll, you'll hear somebody on the field say, oh, that kid's not using his lower half, but he's hitting the ball really hard. Just think how much farther he'd be hitting the ball if he actually turned better, right? So if you were looking at a graph of hip acceleration to deceleration, the trunk doesn't take over until the hips start to decelerate, right? So if you were looking at that graph, when you kick back, your hips accelerate and decelerate at a way faster rate. So it creates faster trunk rotation speed. And ultimately, for some guys, like their, their numbers were off the charts. When Emily, the biomechanist at the lab, called me about the results, uh, she's like, you know, there were, some, there were some outliers here. I don't know if we should include them in the study. And I said, wait a second. I said, what do you mean outliers? She said, well, there were like four guys who... Uh, scored so astronomically high in one thing, I don't think we can put it. And I said, was it the kickback? And she said, yes. And I said, if I can name them, can we include them? So blindly, I was able to name the four guys that, that it was ast- their, their trunk rotation speeds, their exit was astronomically better than every other movement option they had. So, you know, we included it because we're able to name them and we understand why. Like it's a reciprocal movement pattern. They're creating stretch differently than we think to create stretch. So when that back foot kicks back, think about the musculature pulling really tight, like that rubber band pulls really, really tight right into contact. And think about that stretch happening from that back foot all the way to the opposite shoulder instead of the front foot opening and unwinding to the back shoulder. Does that make sense? It does. And you've you've put a lot, a lot of video. I know that Cody Atkinson, a mutual friend of ours, uh, has put out threads of of the kickback and i think he may call it the scissor kick but those well versed in it <laughs> like yourself tell you to say that say that or what he did did he uh maybe okay but yeah, uh, he he told me not to refer to it that cuz then uh then our conversation would be a lot shorter so this here's my thing so the, the the scissor for me is when everybody started calling it the scissor when altuve finally put out that video but it's not that's not the only move right? So the scissor is when the front foot steps closed and the back foot kicks back. We just classify it differently because there's a lot of different kickback variations, you know? So uh, the scissor is a way to do it, but not, in our opinion, the only way to do it because we classify a lot of those movement patterns, you know, differently, you know, because that's, you need to classify them differently because they're different moves. So yeah, thanks Dawes. Appreciate that. <laughs> Shout out to him and and the bucket hat. He's the man. I love that guy. Yeah. He, he's one of the best and the brightest young coaches in the game. He's going to be an absolute. He already is a monster. He's one of the best coaches, if not the best coach I've ever met on both sides of the ball. His understanding and knowledge base of 
the hitting and the throwing side and uh, just his care level for what he does. I, I love talking to that guy. Definitely. And I'll include him in the, uh, in the resources down at the, in the show notes. But before we get to that, I want to know what's, what's something that you've learned lately that you're really excited about? Hmm. We're working on a lot of things all the time. Okay, so when we do PVC work or underload overload work with bats, it's it's the same as like doing uh, mapping work uh, with the arms. So stiffer movers, right? Guys that are stiffer movers and tighter, when they swing the overload bats, their patterns tend to fall apart a little bit because the, the bat is heavier and they're trying to swing it harder. So a lot of times those guys will lose their pattern a little bit, muscle up, get a little bit pushy. But when you put the underload bats in their hands, everything tightens up. Their body can just be relaxed and loose in their movements. So if you have stiffer movers, working with the underload more than the overload is a, is a big help. And when you have looser movers, working with the overload is a way bigger help. And with the arm mapping, it's the same thing. So I talked to Wes Johnson about this the other day. Uh, we talked about it at Palooza, and then he called me maybe like a month and a half ago um, because he was wanting to try that out with some of his guys there. And they've actually, he said that they've gotten some really great results with that. He'll be out here in a couple of weeks. So with throwers, if if you're working on throwing patterns or arm mapping work and they're a stiffer mover, but you're using like the, uh, say the green ball, right? Like the, the, the heavier ball or any of the heavier balls for that matter. Um, with some guys, those heavier balls create better like external rotation. Uh, but with some guys, they, they just tense up even more, tighten up even more. Um, so when you go with the, you know, the yellow, the gray um, with those guys or, or, or throw lighter baseballs, uh, you know, the three and the four, um, that allows them to feel the freedom to, to be loose and they get way better movement patterns, way better external rotations. So, you know, if we have a stiffer mover and we're having trouble with his movement pattern with his arm, we will program in a ton of light work and not a lot of heavy work. And it's, I can't tell you how much that's helped. Uh, in fact, anybody listening to this that tries that, if you get great results with it, please like send us an email, let me know, uh, because I'd really love to see what everybody else thinks of it uh, and, and how often it's working outside the confines of just what, what we're doing here. Definitely try that out. And the PVC work, same thing. So like we, we work with the bigger PVCs with guys sometimes for a multitude of reasons, but if you have a looser mover, the bigger, thicker PVCs work better. And if you have a tighter mover, you know, the, the thinner, looser, the thinner, lighter ones work better. Well, that's interesting. And I'll have to check that out. Who were you saying that you were having a conversation with that earlier? Wes Johnson. God, he's an absolute legend. He's a wonderful human being. Uh, we talked for the first time last summer. He was the pitching coach with the 17U USA team. And one of our pitchers was out there. And afterwards, uh, you know, I gave him a call because my pitcher and him were talking and we were talking, they were talking about training and, and, you know, he communicated to the pitcher that, um, you know, it was okay if I called him when he came back. Uh, so I called him and he shared, spent like two and a half hours with me on the phone and, and we've chatted quite a few times since. And he's actually going to come out to visit us here in a couple of weeks. He's the pitching coach over at Arkansas too. Um, that guy is just a, he's a genius and, and a wonderful human being. Definitely. And, and I wanted you to mention that because uh, he gave an ABCA talk uh, two years ago. So not this last one in January, the one the year before. And there's a ton of great nuggets in that. And I'm sure there were a ton of stuff at the Pitchapalooza. Great guy. Uh, he is a, definitely a developer of arms and a developer of pitchers. So if you guys aren't following what he's doing, he's doing a fantastic job over there. Yeah, everything that guy says is a golden nugget. That guy is that guy. That guy is amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. he just does such an amazing job on the development side and the 
in-game management and the combination of the two, you know, uh, for him to put the lab over there and he's got force plate a mound that he's working with, mm-hmm. like just, uh, yeah, and I've picked up some amazing, amazing nuggets of information from him. Well, while we're on the subject of pitchers, this is a question kind of out of left field, but it's something that I've wondered and I, and I just, it's so hard to wrap my head around how to do this, but how do we teach command? Ah, uh, that's a great question. It's so hard. <laughs> uh, I think it's different for everybody. A lot of it has to do with neuromuscular control. I think a lot of it has to do with arm patterns and, and windows for release. So when a guy has a better arm pattern, in fact, there was a kid here earlier today. He is a six foot four, 14 year old freshman. And when we got him in the beginning of the summer, uh, he could not throw a strike to save his life. And a lot of it had to do with very poor efficiency of movement and a very poor uh, arm pattern. So when his front, when he got the front foot strike, his elbow was real low behind him, and he was trying really hard to force the ball over the top. So the trajectory of his elbow line into his hand line was really high and then immediately low, right? So think about it like a really kind of uh, sharp up to then down. So when you see guys with those arm patterns, if they're just a tick early, right, they're high. And if they're just a tick out in front, uh, they're spiking the ball on the ground. So if they, if they're, I mean, for him, it was a lot of arm mapping work, but you know, there's some guys that you can just cue them instead of focusing on throwing the ball down, throw the ball out, let the slope of the mound allow you to, to move down and just throw the ball out, be direct with the throw, stop trying to force it up high overhead. Um, you know, that, that can help with some guys a lot, but with him, it was just a huge arm mapping project. And, um, you know, he threw a bullpen, uh, just the other day of, I think it was, uh, it was like 22 of 27 in the strike zone. Um, he's up to, you know, touching 82, 83 off the mound. And all of that was in the last, you know, uh, maybe 10 months. So arm pattern, uh, efficiency of movement, the release, right? The release window through that. And then I also like doing a lot of, again, going back to the neuromuscular control, the kinesthetic and spatial awareness work. Also, as a drill, you know, working with guys, uh, doing different, like throw to throw using different weighted balls, whether it's plyo care or baseballs. Um, you can toss a ball into a guy's hand while his, you know, eyes are closed and then he can open them up as soon as he catches it and try to hit a target. Um, you can have moving targets. We hang a bowling pin from the ceiling and we, you know, kind of let it spin back and forth. And as a guy is throwing a bullpen, he's trying to sync up when to hit that bowling pin when it's moving across the plate. So it adds in another timing mechanism factor, you know, but the, when they do the weighted balls, especially the plyo balls into the wall from like, say, 40 feet away, oftentimes like the heavy one is going to go arm side. And by the time they get to the gray, they're spiking it. If they can learn how to throw with different weight balls, throw to throw and throw into the same window or same location, uh, that provides for some really good self-organization. And we've seen some really good, com- you know, uh, command results with that. I know it's something that, that we all struggle with. And a small light bulb for, for the Reedy crew this week. We're, we're just finishing up scrimmage season and, and something that really helped us out this week. And it's, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm stupid, stupid myself for not, bringing this up sooner, but you ask them, you know, so where do you think you release that and and where do you, where should we release that to get it to where we want to go? So if you're missing high, what do we got to do? And they'll take the ball and they'll move it down like two or three feet. And so I'm like, no, 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 no. Just move it an inch or two and let's see what happens. And so they think it's this huge deviation that they have to have, 
But it's that's why neuromuscular control, like you're talking about, is so hard. And that's why throwing a strike is so hard because an inch left or right is two to three feet at the plate. So it is that's why it's so hard. But a light bulb came on for them because they were like, oh, I don't it's not that much that I'm off. And so I don't. Yeah, have- you're 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 100 percent correct. Your your release window, you know, like you said, in your mind, guys overcorrect all the time, mm-hmm. and they, they they don't understand that it, you you should be allowing your mind to guide your body with these small small variances on the shape of the pitches, right? Mm-hmm. So rather than you know, like when you're in a bullpen, guy misses like you know way arm side, and then he misses way on the other side or up down, the same kind of deal teaching them how to like when we do pitch shaping stuff we'll talk about and i got this from uh, tim hoberson from the arizona baseball ranch this works really well for a lot of guys we'll talk about um like using baseball so okay so we're going to move that next pitch two balls up and two balls to the right hmm. right yeah. or we're going to move that pitch one ball down and one ball to the left um and then you can determine what their space like how they perceive that information and now we can go okay let's try four balls up and four balls to the right Right. So, so that gives them actual reference points that they can go to, um, that they can kind of, uh, you know, they're like, uh, go to's for when they're having command issues. And we always want guys to have like a couple different ways because, you know, different days, different things happen. Right. So we want them to have like maybe one or two internal cues they can go to, one or two external cues they can go to. Um, and so at any given time, they have a couple of different weapons for when things aren't going the way they want. And and again, you're going to say all the different things that you said, which will help a couple of kids. And hopefully I said something that will help a couple of kids. And that's like still half of our team. So it's it's different ways to describe things is why coaching is so hard. But again, that's why talking to smart guys like yourself and figuring out, okay, this may work for this guy. And so if I can compound that with something else that works for another guy, then we can help all of these individuals become a team and, and help the entire staff get better. So, no, that's fantastic. Absolutely. I love You're it. trying to build your toolbox as large as you can. That's what we should be trying to do. Every coach should be trying to make their toolbox as large as they can, right? So you have the ability not to just affect a couple of guys, but to affect everybody. And every single player, there's a, we have a pro guy that came in this offseason, and I wouldn't call it a total overhaul, but with definitely uh, cleaning up a lot of different movement issues that he struggled with in his swing. And one of them was that he, he definitely came in too steep. His barrel turn was too late. He didn't have the depth that he was looking for. Um, and, you know, the posture wasn't where it needed to be on landing. Uh, so he struggled a lot of way. Getting to the point, uh, we spent a lot of the off season working on depth and working on connection and working on all these things. And, and then a month and a half before he leaves, as we're going into more, you know, variability work and the patterns there, now we're just trying to challenge it. We're taking more on field BP and where, right? The focus needed to not be the depth of the swing because it was already there, but the focus needed to be down and direct right? We need to be, he needed to think to be direct to the ball. Now, if you look at his swings from the beginning to the end, they're totally different from the beginning of the off season to the end of the off season, right? But the thought to be direct to the ball was what he needed to be uh, efficient with his movements and capture energy at the right time. It all comes down to the F, the, how the individual mover interprets the information that they're being provided. And the better a guy gets and the better his swing gets or the the more some of the old school, say, cues make sense for certain guys. And and that's why we all need to be so open to information. You know, like when guys are talking about, oh, everybody's got to swing up. 
You know what? There's five kids on your team that if they think that this season and all they think is swing up, they're going to have a bad season. And then there's another five guys on your team where if they think, you know, down, 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 they're going to have a bad season. You got to figure out what each guy needs, right? And a lot of times it's the opposite of what they do really well. Like, like, uh, Barry, one of the pro guys we have was with the Marlins and he said that Barry Bonds was very big into his, like, he always talked about like his front leg and his front foot, like, you know, landing and like, and really driving into the ground with that front side. But in reality, right, he's one of the best back leg kind of guys that's ever, right? Like he's that guy. But it makes sense because if he was so good with that backside, maybe he had a tendency to stay back there just a little too much. So what he needed to think about was his front as a result. Like, so, so a lot of times what you need could be the opposite of what you do really well. And there needs to be a balance between, you know, everything. There needs to be a balance between up versus down, direct versus like whatever it is, right? Because balance is the key to everything. Like you, you look at guys, especially when they go in slumps, right? So you look at, uh, you know, judge from last year. Okay. And he's hitting the, the cover off the ball. He's having the best season of any, you know, rookie, like he's just dominating. Right. And then all of a sudden he goes off the deep end. He goes off the deep end. He's, he's striking out at astronomical rates. He's not producing anymore, and he's under everything. At a point in time when he probably needed to think more direct, he was focusing on what made him him, what gave him all those results, snapping his barrel behind him, right? He was focusing on that more because that's what made him successful. But while he was struggling now, he was doing it too much. If he had just changed his thought to be more direct, he might have been able to cut the time he figured that stuff out in half. You know, so understanding how to manage the back and the forth and the flow of, uh, of, of your movement patterns is, is just huge, you know? Well, Eugene, you talked about building coaches' toolboxes and how we need to just keep expanding our minds to new things and how to expand our verbiage to help best help our players. So what are, the, what are some of your favorite resources that have shaped your coaching career that we can dig into to help expand our toolbox? I'll give you the best one, hitting Twitter. I am not, I am not even kidding you, like uh, developing and not just hitting Twitter, but building your own network of really good coaches with open minds that you can share stuff with. That is the most important resource that you could ever have. The guys in the trenches that are doing what they're doing and you can share information back and forth. Like when I think about how much I've grown, you know, since I've had the ability to talk with, you know, uh, I talk to Rick Strickland all the time, talk to Connor Dawson, talk to Ryan Parker. I get to talk to Dustin Lind. I get to talk to Jerry. Well, Jerry's kind of, you know, he's in a smoking, uh, not doing easy. Yeah, he's smoking barbecue right now. Uh, but God, what a genius. Um, you know, just, uh, Steve Johnson from Leg Kick Nation is really good. Like just, just having the ability, Trent Otis, like when, when you build your network of coaches and you have your guys that you can, you know, you send stuff back and forth, you share ideas. Hey, what do you think of this? Hey, try this out. Let me know how this works with your guys. You know, that's such an amazing, amazing thing, you know, and I've built that, you know, over the years and, you know, definitely, uh, that's why I say hitting Twitter. God, that's had such a huge impact on me, right? Like like being able to follow and see what other people are doing and with an open mind and then being able to uh, reach out, share information, um, you know, all that. So uh, definitely your, your best toolbox is like-minded coaches 
that you can kick stuff around with and bounce ideas with and, and you can try stuff with a larger sample set, right? If something is working for you and you really want to know how good it is, give it to one of your buddies working with other players and see what he says. Like, you know, I mean, God, there's nothing better than that, you know? So, uh, there's a lot of great books and, and resources on skill acquisition, like nonlinear pedagogy and things like that. But, um, I, because skill acquisition, I think is a very, it's a the field is is very up and coming, but not even close to where it needs to be. There's a lot of good framework things to consider, uh, but a lot of the studies and the research that's been done is on uh, you know it's in Europe and Australia and it's on sports that do not have the same type of complex and dynamic movement system that we see in baseball. Like swinging a bat and and hitting a ball thrown by a pitcher is the hardest and most complex movement system in all of sports. You know, and throwing a baseball is is the same thing. They are both so difficult. The patterns of elite level players and how to teach them um, and how to acquire those skills and how to alter those movement patterns. Gosh, it's it's so limited. The research is so, so limited um, that we are just beginning the forefront of, I think, a revolution in player development. And, and being able to really dig in and, and learn what really works and what really doesn't and, and what the most important things are and being able to profile guys to give them that information and, and how to be efficient with their player development. Like that's, that's where this whole thing is headed. And I don't even think we're, we're, we're close to being as good at that as, as we could be and we will be in the next uh, five and, and 10 years. Our best coaches are the ones who steal information. And I, I'm fully like I am a world class thief. I feel like that that I, I don't think I've ever had had an original idea. And I'll tell you what, I think hitting Twitter really prompted me to start this podcast because how many good conversations have we had? And and I'm a pitching coach now, but over hitting Twitter of what do you think of this? How did this go? And all that time, I'm like, man, I wish somebody was recording this talk this. Ta- us talking shop right now and and putting it out so other people could hear it. Not necessarily for me, but if I could call a Eugene Bleeker or whoever else that we discussed earlier and record this and send it out, it's going to help so many more people. So I'm I'm completely in on social media and sharing ideas. And it's not about blowing people up for things that we may or may not see. And especially when kids are involved, but just share ideas. And if if somebody's not doing something right. You know, throw it in the DMs and just say, hey, what are you doing? Let me get an understanding of what's going on. And The only thing you can do wrong as a coach is make everybody do the same thing. Because when you watch elite level uh, hitters and throwers, there, there, there's no one thing. There's different things that create. And there's so many different thoughts and, dr- and, and drills and ways to achieve it that are different for each guy. Like the only way someone would know that is not if they, you know, did something over a two day weekend, but if mm-hmm. they, you know, were in the trenches, in the trenches with guys doing real player development over long periods of time, like really seeing what the results are, what's working, what's not working. Like that's where the, that's where the good stuff, you know, gets found. And you can't find that. That, that truly find that unless, unless you have an open mind to so many different things, you know, like that's been such a huge thing for me. If you caught me like five years ago, having a conversation of up versus down, I'm like red in my face, like, oh, the swing is up. Nobody's ever swung down, yada, yada, yada. Like, you know what? Like all of my guys know that they don't actually swing down, but you know, I have guys that need to think down. I tell guys, you got to be more direct. You got to think down. You got to, because I don't care what they, it's not about me. It's not about 
like the information or the word or the cue. It's about getting the best results. What do those best results look like, right? And how do we get each individual player to create them? And, and if you approach that with the most open mind possible, um, you know, you end up like learning a multitude of things and you grow to an exponentially larger degree. Like I grew the most when I stopped looking for what everybody did the same and I started looking at what they did differently. Mm-hmm. That's where I really, really started to grow. Like three years ago when I opened up 108 because I wanted to dig into throwing patterns and swing patterns because I knew there was so much more there. And, and rather than looking at positions, like you could say, Oh yeah, sure. Everybody, you know, gets to the same point of contact position. First of all, they don't. And second of all, like it depends on how you classify the same, right? What do you classify? Like I used to look at each your own pool holes at point of contact that see, it's exactly the same, but it's not exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. They are not exactly the same or identical. They showcase different and how they move through those positions is so different, right? It's, it's not about the positions that guys get to. It's more about how they move through those positions because I don't remember the last time I did an evaluation on a hitter where if you stop them at contact, right? You couldn't put a picture on the wall at home for little Johnny that, oh, little Johnny's got such a great swing. Look at his point of contact position. It's the same as, you know, whoever. Uh, but you know, little Johnny's swing is not very efficient and he doesn't move very well from beginning to end, right? So is it about the position or is it about the movement patterns that we have through the positions, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all about how we figure out, like I said, like just how to make each guy the best version of themselves. And we have to be as a community open-minded to information, right? And, and, and figuring out what's important to that individual player and, and doing about building clarity for high school and college coaches. I didn't even think about mentioning this earlier. Building clarity is so important. No, they don't care about what you're saying until they understand why you're saying it, what you know, how it can impact them, why it's important. Like build clarity with players, do evaluations at the beginning of the season, or I mean, at the beginning of the fall, whenever you first start working with players on a team, get a shared understanding of the philosophy and the structure. And Hey, here's what I see from you. And here's some ideas on how I think you can get better. You would be amazed at seeing how far that would go. And if you mention to them first, the things that they do well and that you really like, and then you share with them some of your ideas, but then also let them know that, you know, hey, listen, you know, those aren't the only things you can do. You should really look into this. There's a lot of ways, you know, you can make yourself better. You know, I mean, don't put all the onus on yourself, like put it on them with an open mind and share clarity with them about what it is that that, that you believe in and also what you don't know. Like we do, we get put in this position as coaches where like we, you know, we're done playing and we start coaching guys and now we're in this position of power. And you know, like we're, we're looked at as like, we're supposed to know everything. And you know what? We don't, nobody knows everything. Right. And it takes a stronger human being and stronger leader, right. To admit that they don't know everything and say, I don't know, but I will help you figure it out. than it does acting like you do know everything when in reality you don't because no one does. I think it shows a better example of what we need to be as as leaders of young men, which is more important than anything else that any of us are doing. We're building uh, fathers and, and future fathers and husbands and, and community leaders and, and business owners, and right? And, and, and we would tell all of them in any other industry, we would tell them, uh, you know, that they need, to, they need to grow and they need to learn and they need to study as much as they can. 
right? And be an individual and not, but then what we're telling them and what we're showing them more importantly is that we're not open to growing and that we know everything and it's going to be done this way. Like, you know, uh, players won't, a, a mentor of mine told me this a long time ago. There's two the most important things I ever heard in my life. One is that people and players, kids, however you want to, whatever word you want to use, they won't always say what you say, but they'll always do what you do. And if you're not the first example for them on who you would want them to be later in life, you, you better do some things differently because you have a huge impact on them as a coach in how they're going to act as a man and as a father and all those other things later. You know, the other one, I heard Kenton Bashore say this. He's a pastor at, at uh, Mariner's Church, uh, which is a church I go to out here. He said, and this was like three years ago, I heard him say, um, our ability to influence others is directly related between what we say versus what we do. You're not going to listen to a nutrition expert that weighs 400 pounds and eats McDonald's at practice every day, right? You're not, you're not, you're not going to listen to him on nutrition. Okay. Um, so, so we need to be the example of, of who and what we want our players to become and, and how we want them to act. Right? Like not just now, but for later. And that's so much more important than, than any of the baseball stuff. And, and it all ties into it. Man, I love that. And, and as much as, as I can see you just dropping the mic and walking away, we do have a couple of questions, uh, to answer before you go, but I love it. It was awesome. I have a feeling that those are going to end up on the quote tweets on Twitter, but man, switching gears, you got me fired up. So I'm, I'm sorry about that, but, but that's, that's something I'm really passionate about as well. And, and we are leaders of men and, and, and for the softball coaches out there of young women. And again, it just goes back to the, the four to six to however many years we have them versus the, the rest of the 40 years that, that they're going to be young men and young women and husbands and wives and, and parents. And so completely on board with that. And, and that's something that, that we, we cannot neglect, uh, for the next generation. But whew, switching gears. What's the best coaching tool that you have ever bought for under one hundred dollars? And don't say PVC pipe. PVC pipe. Oh, <laughs> it, it is. It is. Ah, it is. Dang it. Why can't I use it? Has uh, have other people used it? Why can't I use it? No, because you've already mentioned it. I knew you were going to say that. Oh my God, PVC pipes! I can't stress the importance enough. They allow a hitter for hitters. It allows them the freedom to move. Look, when, when you look at altering a swing or a guy learning how to hit differently, okay, um, the, when you look at learning, the central nervous system has these movement pathways, right? Like this is your brain. There's no such thing as muscle memory. Your brain controls all your movement. It has all the memory. It, 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 it tells your body, this is how I do this activity, right? And, and for some guys, it's really, really difficult to alter those movement patterns when, when you're doing something that you've done 5 million times before with such a high care level, right? Like you, when I hit off a tee, this is how I swing. So getting them to move differently can be hard. When you put a PVC pipe in their hands, the freedom, it's just like a plyo ball for arm mapping, right? Like the freedom that you have to move and manipulate your body in different ways. My God, it's amazing, right? And if I can't say PVC pipe, I want to say wiffle ball bell. Like <laughs> God, there's so many different tools other than that, but just that that's, I would say, is, is such an important one. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, for under 100 bucks, I would say, can it be, a, can it be on the mental side? Kind Go ahead. Of, or Go ahead. Like Go ahead. Yeah. Anything. Dustin Lynn's Google Drive, man. Perfect. Dustin Lynn's Google Drive is the, the gold mine, and it's going to be even better. And actually, we're working on something here at 108 that we feel like is going to be a an extremely valuable tool to the uh, to the baseball community as a resource. 
you know, so we're, we're hoping to, to get that out by the, you know, by the summertime or into the fall, but just, um, you know, anytime you can, you can find uh, video and content and just any resource like Dustin Lynn, the work he's put in just, uh, mm-hmm. he's a wonderful being and, uh, you know, like how much work he put in and puts that out there for free. Like he's just, uh, he's an amazing guy and he's a genius. And that led that drive we use every single day. We have guys looking at that every single day. It is on our computers at both shops on both computers. Well, and the Mariners well, were the Mar- extremely bright for hiring him. And uh, former yeah. guest, former guest, I, I can't say I'm, I'm, I'm a bad talent evaluator now. So congratulations to him. And, and I know that they did an awesome job. And, and I know that, that he's influenced both of our careers. Yeah, no, I had a huge influence on it. You know, and actually I shot uh, Andy McKay uh, a message the other day. Um, and we've been trying to catch up on a, on a phone call about just let, you know, congratulating them and him on, on going out and getting Dustin and, um, you know, Dawes and I and Park, especially, we were always joking about, uh, you know, when is, when is a team going to, you know, uh, hire that guy, right? Like he's a genius, like somebody needs to hire him and, you know, the Mariners did it. So kudos to them and Andy, you know, especially. Definitely. I've taken a lot of your time and I can't say that, that I'm sorry about that because it's, it's been a, a really short two hours that I've, that we've been on the mic together and, and I've loved every minute of it. But, uh, our listeners, if they want to get in contact with you, what would be the best way to do that? Um, if they want to get in contact, um, feel free to, you can email us, um, you know, 108 at 108 performanceacademy.com. Um, so you can email us, get in contact with us there. You can give us a call. I'm happy to field or answer any phone calls. Always open to that. Um, at 951-354-2589, I think the office number is. And then, uh, we also have, you know, a, you know, Twitter account and then, um, you know, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Instagram, uh, that we post things on all the time. And we have our entire team, like we have an R&D one, uh, we have a strength one, we have a throwing, a hitting, and then the regular one-way performance one. So uh, everybody's putting out some really good content on that right now. And um, yeah, and then we're working on overhauling the, the website at the moment as well to provide uh, a lot more content and information for the, for the baseball community. So we just appreciate that, that people uh, appreciate the hard work um, you know, that we're doing over here just to kind of share information. And we're just trying to get better, man. We're just trying to get better every day over here. That's it. Got it. And I'll link that stuff down in the show notes. And uh, Eugene, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Nope. I think that's, uh, that's you know, that's good, man. This was a, this was a wonderful experience. I, I really appreciate uh, your time and you having me on, you know, and I, I look forward to uh, talking with you about, um, you know, some other things moving forward. And, uh, you know, I know that we had a great conversation out there at, uh, at the ABCA and just talking player development. I, I always love chopping it up with guys who are doing a really good job and you're doing a fantastic job. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for, for having me on. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to view the show notes or get in touch with me, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com or on the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association app. Help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. But before you go, here's a quick word from our friends at Keeper of the Game. Hi, this is Ben Hunter, Keeper of the Game's Youth Ambassador and the Student Director of Baseball Operations at Reedy High School. 
Keeper of the Game provides great baseball experiences for kids with special needs and disabilities. Keeper also creates service opportunities for teams like Baby Baseball. Check us out at KeeperOfTheGame.org, Keeper of the Game on Facebook and Instagram. Our Twitter handle is at BaseballKeepers via Keeper of the Game.